He was the greatest king in the history of Israel. But he wasn't the first king, and he wasn't the most pure, and the Israelites weren't completely sold on the idea of a monarchy anyway, and we don't even know his real name. The Israelites referred to him as their beloved king without ever recording his actual name. Beloved, as a Hebrew name, is David. And so King David, King Beloved, has come down to us not necessarily as the perfect king, but as the greatest nonetheless. For what he achieved was to unify the Israelite people into a single nation. From him, the Israelites became a powerful country. To borrow an unfortunate phrase, he didn't make Israel great again. He made Israel great, period. He put Jerusalem into Jewish history. From him, the future kings of Israel descended, or aspired to claim to descend. And until recently, we couldn't even be sure that he ever existed. King David kicked off a century of greatness that deeply impacted the rest of Israelite and Jewish history. This era, called the United Monarchy, lasted less than a hundred years, had only a few kings, and ended in disaster. But it became the era that all the other eras were defined against. It solidified a lot of the ideas that the Israelites had been considering for the past couple centuries, and then pushed those ideas into the future. The next few episodes, we'll be talking about King David, his son, King Solomon, why Jerusalem became the central city, the creation of the first temple, and why we care, and as many other stories that I can pack in as densely as possible. So sorry. In any case, I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Oughta Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We begin the story of the Israelite monarchy not with King David, but with a character named Samuel. The Hebrew Bible sets Samuel up as the pivotal transition figure between the era of the judges and the era of the monarchy. He's a prophet and a warrior judge and a kingmaker, basically a whole bunch of roles rolled into one person for convenience. When Samuel was a young man, according to the Hebrew Bible, the Philistines sacked an Israelite city and made off with the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's holiest object and the seat of God's power on earth. The Ark ended up being more trouble than it was worth, and less than a year later the Philistines returned it. But for the next 20 years, Samuel nursed his grievances while also emerging as a national figure holding the Israelites together politically, militarily, and spiritually. When the Philistines staged another attack, Samuel led the Israelites in battle and defeated their hated enemies. Despite his success, or maybe because of it, the Israelites realized they could only defeat the Philistines in the long run by getting a king to lead them. They insist that Samuel appoint them a king so that, in their words, we may be like all the other nations. Now that's a strange request from a people who insist on being different, who believe that being chosen means having a special relationship with God that no others have. The idea of separateness, that they are not like all the other nations, pervades Israelite identity, philosophy, and theology. And Samuel reminds them of this. God is your king, he pleads. God is the supreme ruler, no king necessary. Now, did Samuel really exist? Well, of course we don't know. But what he is describing, the words that the biblical authors are putting into his mouth centuries later, do reflect the historical situation at this time, just before we hit the year 1000 BCE. 
The Israelites were still living as separate tribes throughout Canaan, 12 tribes with their own territories and their own leaders and their own economies and ways of doing things. This was the era of the judges that we talked about last episode. The system had worked for the first couple centuries of their existence, but things are changing now in their corner of the Near East. The Philistines are back. Well, back for us anyway. They never left in the first place and, in fact, just got more powerful. The Philistines had been part of the invasion of the Sea Peoples, that huge destabilizing influx of Mediterranean migrants and refugees who challenged the existing empires in the Near East. The Philistines had successfully fought off Egypt and Canaan and had settled into territory that we call the Pentopolis. Five cities clustered around each other in what is today southern Israel and the Gaza Strip. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, all in an area squished in between Egypt and Canaan. From here, the Philistines pushed to expand their reach further into Canaan, up towards the highlands where the Israelites were living. We don't know too much about what exactly was happening, but the fact that the Hebrew Bible writes extensively about the Philistines as Israel's archenemies suggests that there was a major tension and a significant threat. The point of all this is that it was this threat of the Philistines that probably led ancient Israel to finally consider instituting a monarchy. Better to have a single commander at the head of a huge army than try to coordinate 12 smaller tribal armies, which makes perfect sense. But the biblical scholar Carol Myers notes that there were other reasons for the Israelites to initiate a monarchy. In the century or so before the monarchy, Israel's population dramatically increased. This required more land and labor for agriculture and housing, which put pressure on the environment and society. A centralized political system can better distribute resources where they are needed, can ensure that new technologies get used widely and efficiently, can negotiate and facilitate the kind of international trade networks that would be needed to meet the needs of a growing population, and can help move people efficiently across tribal borders. As Myers notes, State leaders can provide social stability where local leaders can't, providing the means to resolve internal conflicts over things like land and water, a system of justice for everyone. All these things and more archaeologists and historians have found evidence for in ancient Israel. In other words, both the Bible and the historical evidence seem to agree that just before the year 1000 BCE, it was high time for Israel to find itself a king. So Samuel, this transition figure between the old era and the new, is still reluctant to appoint a king at the Israelites' request. He warns them about what would happen. The king will force your sons into his army and your daughters into his household. He'll take the best bits of land for himself, the cream of your crops for himself. He'll take all your slaves, and then he'll turn you into his slave too. And then, says Samuel, you'll cry out to God to save you, but by then it will be too late. For all the upsides of a king that we just noted, these are the downsides. A monarchy, as we all know, can be a dangerous step towards a dictatorship. Once the ultimate power is achieved by one man, he will be reluctant indeed to give any of it up. Yet the Israelites insisted, give us a king. So God has Samuel appoint as king a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, which came from the territory around Jerusalem. So Saul becomes the very first king of Israel. He generally gets a bad rep in the Bible, because the writers want to set the scene for David to come swooping in as the ultimate legitimate king. 
Saul does a good job at fighting Israel's enemies, but he runs into trouble. He disobeys direct orders from Samuel and sins against God. In one instance, he made a sacrifice to God instead of waiting for Samuel to do it, which was a major violation of everyone's appointed job description. In another case, he let an enemy force live instead of killing them like God instructed. Because of this, Samuel tells him he won't have a dynasty. It won't be his family's name that forms the monarchy. It will be someone else's. It will be David's. To which Saul, incredulous, says, Who? You mean the kid from my royal band? For 3,000 years, Jews revered King David as the greatest of all kings. Yet the only information we had on him came from the Hebrew Bible. As far as we know, not a single other ancient people recorded his existence or anything about him. If they did, we haven't found it. Except for one thing. In 1993, archaeologists digging in Tel Dan, an ancient city in northern Israel, found a stele, a broken piece of stone with Aramaic writing on it. It was dated to the 800s BCE, about 200 years after David lived, and it mentioned the assassination of a son of the king of Israel. The king, said the inscription, was of the house of David. And this was the first mention we had outside the Bible of the Davidic monarchy. Most scholars, but not all, have taken this as pretty conclusive evidence that the real King David did indeed exist. In fact, if you start at the beginning of the Bible and read it through, David is the very first biblical character for whom we have archaeological evidence. For his life story, however, we're still left with the Hebrew Bible as written centuries after he lived. The future King David was born a simple shepherd boy into the tribe of Judah, which was the territory just south of the tribe of Benjamin, around what is today Bethlehem and down to the Negev Desert. Samuel treks down there to tell him that God is going to make him king someday. Which is nice, you know, but promises don't put challah on the table, so David's still going to have to work for a living. When King Saul takes ill, his royal aides think the problem is that he doesn't have enough music, so they send for the best lyre player in the land. Lo and behold, it's this king, David. So David ends up in the royal band, where he's a hit on the bar mitzvah circuit. But being in the king's band also puts him in close proximity to the king's army, and he's with Saul when once again the Israelites and Philistines meet in battle. The Philistines come to the fight with their hulking mountain of a warrior, Goliath. The Hebrew Bible first records that a man named Elchanan defeated Goliath, only later do the writers go back to instead insert David as the hero. Why? Well, so that they can justify his warrior street cred. Remember, one of the main reasons to have a king is so he can lead an army. The fact that David gets credited with killing the Philistines' giant soldier is a huge boost for him. The biblical account is all about making David look like the inevitable choice, and making him and the dynasty that will come from him look like true and legitimate kings. And this means that the biblical writers have to make Saul look bad. They couldn't erase the fact that he was Israel's first king, but they could twist the storyline to clear the way for David. Upon defeating Goliath, Saul makes David the head of the army. But now David is more popular than Saul. As a musician, David should have known never to upstage the front man because Saul's jealousy drives the king to try to kill him. David flees and goes on a convoluted odyssey, bouncing around from place to place, even seeking refuge with the Philistines. Saul gives up, and the Philistines rise again against the Israelites, this time without David there to slay any Goliaths. 
For a couple thousand years, the rabbis and sages of Judaism wrestled with this idea of an Israelite kingship. Did it represent a success on Israel's part or a failure? Did the kingship mean that they had successfully weathered the early stages of Near Eastern civilization to arise at a legit state? Or was the monarchy a sign that they had failed to govern themselves effectively at the local level and so fell back on the ancient system of authoritarian rule? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites, If, after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me, as do all the nations about me, then you shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. The sages wondered whether this was a commandment or just a permission slip. If it was a commandment, well, then the Israelites did the right thing. They did what they were supposed to do. Maimonides, the medieval philosopher considered the greatest of Jewish philosophers, thought so. But many sages got hung up on that word, if. Many suggested that it was just an option given to the Israelites, not a commandment. And they wondered, therefore, if there could have been a better way. After all, as we've seen, the Hebrew Bible itself was ambivalent about a monarchy, detailing the benefits, yes, but also making sure that Samuel laid out the potential downsides. The Bible also lays out a laundry list of do's and don'ts for the king himself, all the requirements he must observe to ensure that he doesn't become an absolute tyrant. Don Isaac Abarbanel, a Portuguese Jew living in the 1400s and 1500s, was another extraordinary philosopher. And he felt the opposite of Maimonides. He felt that the if in Deuteronomy meant that the monarchy was simply an option, not a commandment. And Abarbanel argued it wasn't even a good option. Much better, he thought, that the people should rule themselves by choosing a small group of them to sit in council together, making the necessary decisions for the common welfare, and then disbanding when the need was accomplished. And yet Rabbi Mark Saperstein of the Leo Beck College in London writes, As much as Don Isaac Abarbanel disliked the monarchy, he was simultaneously opposed to overthrowing the king, too. Not an infrequent occurrence in the ancient Near East, of course, nor indeed in Abarbanel's time. From his perspective, the monarchy posed a kind of paradox. You shouldn't have a king because a king is tyranny. But if you do have one, better keep him in place until something better comes along organically. In Abarbanel's time, the Jews were at the mercy of the local kings, and some of those kings persecuted them. But worse for the Jews, said Abarbanel, were the mobs that resulted from rebellions. For him, in looking at Jewish history... He felt Jews were better served by the political stability that comes from having a strong central ruler, says Rabbi Mark Saperstein. We saw last episode how the Israelites had their system of judges, charismatic leaders without hereditary claims to rule, who rose up to meet crisis moments and then, when victorious, presumably went back to their private lives. At least one judge had resisted the call to install himself as a permanent ruler, so from a historical perspective, we could argue that the transition to a monarchy was a huge success. It consolidated the Israelite people into a unified nation, and, as we'll see, brought them a century of greatness. But in another sense, it ushered in a system of authoritarian rule that would variously serve them well and also quite terribly for the next five centuries. It was a move, writes the scholars, from an emphasis on kinship and to kingship from local leadership 
to national. Although Saul was the first, it was David who will set the Israelites onto this entirely new path. We left King Saul approaching the battlefield against the Philistines, absent David, who was hiding from Saul's murderous intentions. On Mount Gilboa, the Israelites were routed, Saul's sons were killed, and Saul chooses to fall on his own sword rather than be captured. The first king of Israel dies in defeat. The throne is momentarily empty. Now the Israelites were divided into two large territories, one in the north and one in the south. The northern territory is called Israel, and the southern territory is called Judah. Jerusalem is roughly in the middle. Upon Saul's death, David is appointed king of Judah, the southern territory. In the north, one of Saul's surviving sons, Eshbaal, is appointed king of Israel. And let me shock you with a major plot twist that you definitely didn't see coming. Eshbaal doesn't make it. He is assassinated. And while I can't prove that David is the one who ordered the hit, well, we also can't prove that OJ did it, but the evidence is about the same for both cases. In any case, the Israelites come together in the city of Hebron and crown David king of all Israel. Now, in 2012, archaeologists found a shattered ceramic jar dating back to the time of David. It was found in the area of the kingdom of Judah. When they pieced it back together, they found an inscription— one of only four inscriptions found so far in Judah that date to the time of King David. The inscription had Eshbaal's name on it, and it is the only inscription that has ever been found from any time period with that name Eshbaal. The nature of the jar tells us that this Eshbaal was an important person. Was it the assassinated son of Saul, or just someone else with the same name? Scholars are debating, but either way, it's another fascinating link between the world of the Bible 3,000 years ago and the archaeological history that we can still uncover occasionally today. So David emerges on top, crowned king of all Israel, fulfilling the prophecy set forth by God through Samuel. Scholars put the date of David's coronation at about 1005 BCE. With the crown in hand, David now has the task of unifying the two halves, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. For starters, he's going to need what every king needs, a great capital city in which to build a great palace. He sets his sights on what had until then been a relatively minor provincial town tucked away in the mountains, a small city that hadn't even been conquered by the Israelites, and was instead shared between them and a people called the Jebusites. But David was determined to make it his city. It's the name we all know, Jerusalem. So that's next time. As always, jewaudonno.com, and my email is jewaudonnopodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this season and the others, please consider making a donation of any amount. It's all very much appreciated. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later.